Please rise. Court is now in session. I strenuously object. A legal podcast brought to you by the Pittsburgh law firm of Flaherty Fardo is now in session. All those seeking information about the law and legal matters affecting the people of Pittsburgh and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, half-baked opinions, and a dose of self-indulgence are invited to attend and participate. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The defense strenuously objects. You would! Call the first witness. All right, hello, season's greetings, and welcome to I Strenuously Object, uh, season's greetings. Boy, that, I don't really know what that means. It's kind of like the, the emptiest way that you can acknowledge a time of year without having to take a stand on which particular season or holiday or whatever we're talking about. Santa! Oh my God! Santa here? I know him. In the interest of inclusion and not, not taking any stances and, and because wishing someone a happy advent is kind of weird. Anyway, season's greetings. Glad we're able to be here today. Uh, I am joined by attorney Noah Fardo, managing partner of the law firm Flaherty Fardo, Rogel, and Amick. Morning. Good morning. Well, you're politically correct. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy- That's what season's greetings is, right? I mean, it's better than... I think Pittsburgh stopped using this ridiculous phrase sparkle season. Uh, I, I think they retired that one. Really stupid. Really stupid. But the worst of all time was definitely sparkle season. I agree there. Then you crossed over the political correctness with the happy advent, but you showed your true colors and I'm okay with that. This is an axe I grind all the time, right? Uh, we, we celebrate holidays in advance of the holidays, and then as soon as they happen, we're done. I hate Easter decorations during Lent. I'm less opposed to Christmas decorations during Advent, but it has some of the same feel. All right. Well, we're canceled for even talking religions. <laughs> well, in the interest of getting us one more voice and one more risk of uh, impending cancellation, we do also have a guest with us here today. The Italian-American lobby may want to cancel me for calling him the godfather. What are you, fucking crazy? Certainly he wants to cancel me for continuing to call him the godfather uh, of tax appeals or otherwise. And then I do not forgive. No, I'll let you handle the rest of the introduction here. Who do we got? Yeah, Ron is the ultimate juror. When When we have cases, and I've talked to hundreds of people, Ron is the only one that can actually give me many different views. So he's like having six to eight different jurors. And if we're going to do a case or no case, I don't want to have six, eight people. I want every day the godfather, Ron. All right. Uh, so, Ron, having Noah just disclosed what sounds like protected health information with respect to uh, your psychological condition here. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. And how are you? Thank you for having me. It sounds like I need to go take my meds before we begin. Well, we're, we're certainly happy to have you and to have some outside perspective to keep us in check and to let us know if we've kind of fast forwarded over some stuff where we need to slow down or use some terms of art or, or just to get, get an educated but lay perspective on the things we talk about. And what we're doing here today um, and what I should have probably put earlier in the, uh, in the intro and, and maybe we can Frankenstein it later. We are doing one of our old standbys and favorites. It's time for case or no case. We've got a case here where there was a trespass onto a railroad car and a, a lawsuit filed ultimately in federal court about it. So let, let me give you the facts on this and then we can we can get into a little discussion about about what what should happen, what is happening and the other facts of the case. But we got two 17 year olds 
who climbed up a ladder to the top of a, a rail car. I think it was a box car, but it really doesn't matter what kind of car it was. But the rail car was parked on the tracks, obviously, but under what they call a, a catenary line, which I guess is a geometry term. But it, but it means like those saggy electrical wires that kind of uh, light rail will use to kind of power itself. So if you if you go places that have street level light rail tracks, you'll see those kind of droopy power lines that hang over the tracks. And the, the train has a big kind of bar that sticks up above it and makes contact with multiple of the, the wires so that it can draw its power right from above it. So anyway, this car, not in and of itself a light rail car, but it was parked off on a track that had these kind of lines over them. So the kids climb up on top of the car. Uh, while they're on top of the car, high voltage arcs from these catenary lines. They don't touch the like a, a dangling wire or something, but they were close enough to it for the electricity to arc. One of the plaintiffs was burned over 75% of his body, permanently lost the use of one of his hands. Uh, the other, uh, the burns were over, I guess, 18% of his body. I think uh, if I understood it correctly, he was he was injured trying to help his friend who was being electrocuted in the moment. Serious injuries, um, you know, permanent both scarring and, and, and some functional deficits, but not fatal. Uh, again, they didn't touch the line, but they were trespassers, right? They had no right to be on this track, climbing this car, going up onto the roof of this car. They were shocked while trespassing. Mike, the podcast producer here. Real quick, before we open this up to discussion, I just have to play a clip that comes to mind when I think of this case. It's that scene from Liar Liar, which I'm sure you all remember, where his secretary has had enough. She's in the middle of quitting, and she gives him a piece of her mind. Several years ago, a friend of mine had a burglar on her roof. He fell through the kitchen skylight, landed on a cutting board on a butcher's knife, cutting his leg. The burglar sued my friend, and because of guys like you, he won. My friend had to pay the burglar $6,000. Is that justice? No. I'd have got him 10. Noah, first, put it to you. Case or no case? So what you're asking or I guess what the allegation was, was the electric lines were too low. Is that basically what you're understanding as the theory of liability? That, yes, they were trespassing, but these lines should not have been live and they got burned? Well, I think it's more the, the location of the car under the lines, right? You park this car under the lines. The lines are as low as they have to be so that a train that's running under them can make contact with. Who's it against? Who's it against? The train company? It's a case against the tra train company. Obviously, we can consider if there's other people on the hook here, but the train company is responsible for where the car is, uh, where the lines are. Uh, they, they own or at least have possessory interest in the track itself. I don't have the sense that there are any other theoretical parties in this suit. But in any case, the, the suit that was brought was brought against a rail company. All right. And the train is on a track. The train is on a track. Yes. As, as trains are wont to be. Well, I got to make sure I understand this. And the train is under going underneath a wire. But ha the reason they're getting sued is they stopped it. This is a parked car, right? This is not a train that stopped temporarily or whatever. You know, this is this is a car that's been shuttled off onto a siding for storage or whatever. But presumably, in addition to this being, as I understand it, a freight car, there are different kinds of trains that use these tracks for different purposes. And so there has there is access to these these catenary lines in case you're putting a car over there that operates on that electricity. But this particular car doesn't need the electricity as such. It's just where they parked it. Yeah, I want to see what Ron has to say. But, my, you know, my first questions are, was it foreseeable? Has it ha ever happened before? Um, do they know that 
children climb on these parked cars? Is there graffiti on top? And I think the foreseeability from a legal perspective is what I'm asking first. But Ronnie, initial thoughts? I hate these cases. I hate them for the plaintiff. Um, five out of six of me believes that if you are trespassing, you get what you deserve. Um, I get it. They're injured. Maybe some could have been fatally, right? Um, but I don't like these. It's like when someone's robbing you and they twist their ankle and I'm supposed to call my insurance company and pay for their medical bill. I don't like it for the plaintiff. Let me ask you a question, Ron. Let me see if I let me see if I can change your mind at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. You and I are neighbors uh, in a housing plan. Um, the kids, without my permission, I actually have a no trespassing sign. They use my backyard to cut to the high school because they don't want to have to walk out the entire cul-de-sac. Okay. I know that there is several different dangerous conditions on my property. There's broken glass. Um, there's big holes that are covered that you can't see that you'll break your ankle. I know of these dangerous conditions. They ignore my trespassing signs. Your child crosses my property and gets hurt. Do, do you have a case or does he have a case? He has a boo-boo, <laughs> right? He shouldn't have been there. <laughs> well, in that instance, the no trespassing sign really does it for me. I mean, if it was just like a known pathway and you never tried to stop people from going through, um, yeah, then there might be some liability. You were aware, um, you, you welcomed it by default, and maybe you should clean up your glass. But if you have a no trespassing sign, you don't want people there and they're there, it's on them. So, Bill, I couldn't persuade Ron, right? Can you? Yeah, well, so first of all, first of all, I think, I think no, you've asked some of the right questions here, but let me back out a little bit. Five-sixths of Ron defaults to where I think most of the population defaults, which is you're trespassing. I don't, as a property owner, I shouldn't owe you anything. I owe you no duty. You don't want to get hurt. Don't come on my land. That's not what the law is on trespassers. In the law, they they have different levels of kind of person who's present on your property and different duties owed to each. And they to, to take them in order that your duties get lower and lower as you move through this progression, right? So you have at the highest level what they call a business invitee. Uh, a business invitee is a customer, someone who is on your property to make you money. And you know they're on there and the whole purpose of it is it's open to them and they're supposed to be there, right? And you owe them the highest duty um, as a property owner at the law. Uh, a non-business invitee owes, is kind of the same duty, but a little bit lower. So that's if you have friends or family and they're not making you money, but you've specifically invited them to your property. Come over to my house for a party. Then there's what they call a licensee, which is someone who is on the property with your permission but not for your purposes and not with, you know, your express invitation. And you owe a slightly lesser duty to someone who has your permission to be there, but you're, but you didn't invite them in. And then the lowest level, unsurprisingly, is to a trespasser. You owe a trespasser less duty than you owe to everyone else, but you still owe something under Pennsylvania law. So under Pennsylvania law, your, your duty to a trespasser generally is just not to engage in willful or wanton misconduct right? Basic negligence doesn't apply, but if it's so willful or if it's kind of wanton neglect, that can trigger liability on your part. The obvious example here is, let's say instead of just knowing there's stuff back there, Noah's like, man, I'm tired of these kids cutting across my yard. So he digs a pit and covers it over with leaves. 
So that and he put signs saying, "Hey, no trespassing, warning." But he intentionally creates something that they're not going to see, obscures it from their vision, and allows them to fall in it. He's going to be liable for that, and that sort of case is one of the reasons we have uh, some measure of liability to trespassers because the, the the courts don't want people to engage in that kind of conduct where they're setting traps for trespassers, right? Bill, I was just wondering if we could add sharpened bamboo sticks <laughs> to the pit. Um, I mean, I, I suspect that would only only increase your liability, but yeah, sure, right? That exact kind of trap. And and obviously, look, we in this business, I've had a lot of phone calls from a lot of angry landowners about, about their neighbors, about people using their property. Uh, we know there are people who get so worked up over their property that, you know, that they will set traps to injure people and the law doesn't abide that. But there is an additional principle at play. Uh, it's what they used to call the attractive nuisance doctrine. That's been a little bit modified by the re under Pennsylvania law and the restatements. Um, so it's a little bit of an antiquated phrase, but it conveys the point. If I have, I don't know, a, like a giant bounce house set up in the back of my yard and I don't have fences and the neighbor kids come over and play on it and they're injured because it's not actually set up. The fact that it's children is relevant. You have to take into account the fact that, look, children might trespass. They might make bad decisions. They're not expected to be fully mature. And if you have something that is basically calling to them, then the fact that you didn't give them express permission to come onto your land becomes not entirely irrelevant, right? But it's no longer a defense. You are responsible to take reasonable measures to make sure that if you have this quote unquote attractive nuisance, that someone who follows that attraction doesn't encounter some risk of injury, serious injury that you're aware of and they're not aware of and wouldn't discover. So, and you see this sometimes with people who are injured in neighbor's swimming pools or whatever, and they're there without permission, but we understand that kids are going to be kids sometimes. And the, the responsibility is different for a child than an adult as a trespasser. I wanted to back up to where you were describing who has access to a property. And it started with, you know, people that were invited Right. In different. Right. What they call invitees, you know, so business invitees. But after all the invitees, we went there was there was a big gap between invitees to trespassers. Mm -hmm. And I feel there's like an in between category of like recreational use, you know, pe like people using your woods to hunt or walk. Is there anything in state law that addresses that where? It seems to me like there's this category they're invited or this category they're trespassing. There's nothing kind of in between. Well, hey, we know these people are always back there in the woods. Well, there there is. There's a category what they call a licensee, which is someone who is there, you know, with your permission, but not your express invitation or for your own purposes. Okay. Right. So if you have a neighbor who has kind of repeatedly cut across your land and you're like, yeah, I'm good with it. It's OK. I know he hunts back there then you owe a higher duty than you do to a trespasser, but not the same duty you would owe if you were, you know, if you were charging him to come hunt on your land or something. Right. And for me, the reason I'm asking that question, if, if I'm sitting in, in a jury pool, that's going to heavily influence how I would decide if someone were to have uh, some kind of recompense for an injury or, or, or something of that nature. Again, if someone's breaking into your house, like I have zero tolerance for that. But, you know, if, if, if you say like, oh, yeah, um, what is that? Attra an attractive nuisance. Uh, you know, I have my trampoline out back and I know these kids come and play on it all the time. One of them gets hurt. I I'm expecting to be sued. 
I really am. You know what I mean? You need to not offer that or or be aware that, you know, someday you're going to get sued. Your homeowners is going to get sued. You have to you have to kind of overrun the um, the natural instinct a little bit. Right. So the theoretically, at the end of a case, the judge gives you instructions on the law and the judge is going to tell you about what the duty that's owed to a trespasser is, whether that does or doesn't comport with your instincts as to what the duty should be. But even someone who breaks in, let's say hypothetically, I'm, I'm in an area where, you know, it's high crime or someone broke into my house once years ago. I'm like, I've had enough of this. And so I, I set up, a, you know, I set knives under my window. Uh, or I do like the Kevin McAllister thing from Home Alone, right? To to be seasonally appropriate here, and I I put a bunch of you know a blowtorch over the door. In that case, obviously, like defending your own well-being as an act of self-defense is a separate issue, right? But if I just set that trap at my house so that someday if someone breaks into my house, this is what fate befalls them, sorry, that's willful. Um, that's wanton, and you're going to be on the hook for that. Mike, a podcast producer here. There's a question that keeps coming up in my mind, and I don't know if you mentioned it in the original story, but were there barriers in place keeping them away from this area? Did they have to climb fences and, and so forth? I do think that matters. That was not clear from so. So and this will let me also get back into answering some of the first questions that Noah had, because I do think he's seizing on some things that the court did as they develop the factual record here. Um, obviously, it's a train that's on tracks. Uh, generally speaking, if you follow the tracks, you can get there, right? Um, because they can't fence off the tracks and then have to come out and take the fences off or the gates down every time a train comes through. So any train that's on tracks like that is, if you follow a sufficiently circuitous path, able to be accessed from the track. Now that may take you walking through the station around house or something and back out. The case here, as I reviewed it, did not tell me whether or not they had to hop any fences to get there. Uh, based on the lines over there, it's certainly possible. I'm assuming, unless it tells me otherwise, right, that they did not have to scale a fence. They didn't barbed wire the thing in. It was relatively accessible. Now it's on railroad tracks, right? You know, as a 17 year old kid, you're not supposed to be playing on the railroad tracks, climbing on a car. Like they didn't, they knew they weren't supposed to be there, but I don't think they had to like break and enter to get to that point. I don't think there was a fence to scale. Now, some other, some questions that Noah asked right at first instinct, right? Uh, has this happened before? Uh, was there, was there graffiti around? Graffiti was interesting because that's specifically one of the things that an appellate court talked about in affirming the trial court's judgment is, look, the train company here is on notice that this sort of trespassing happens with some measure of frequency. Uh, I read about a, this, this case, I, th I think this was Amtrak, but it was a case about Conrail. Uh, anyway, I saw in another case from, much, it was older statistics. It was from like back in the eighties. But at that time when they were doing the analysis, they said that on Conrail's uh, various lines, something on the order of 24 children on average were either killed or severely injured uh, by these catenary lines um, every year. Now, I, I'm hoping those numbers have come down since the 80s. Um, I don't know. I, I haven't seen a more recent analysis than that. I, I am I am not a, you know, a, a person who works in risk at a railroad to know the full on answer to that. But railroad companies know two things that are relevant here. One, they know that kids will climb on top of cars if those cars are left available. Not every day, right? But but they know it happens. And they know that there is a risk from these catenary lines that 
the public probably isn't going to be aware of, by which I mean they have to train the heck out of all of their employees when they hire them about working in proximity to these lines because you don't have to touch them to get shocked. Because they hang low, they're not at a uniform height or tension because there's high voltage running through them. Um, so the fact that they have to train a bunch of their own employees to be aware of this risk is an indication that you wouldn't expect the local high school kid to be aware of that risk in that level of detail when they haven't had that sort of training. There was graffiti on cars that were kept in this area. There were a couple schools in relatively close proximity to where this car was parked. There were some ancillary facts that made it such that, look, this, this wasn't an entirely unforeseeable occurrence. It didn't mean the kids weren't trespassers, right? The kids were still trespassers, but there was enough notice of the the risk that was being posed there by this car, which, by the way, doesn't live there all the time, but was parked there, you know, temporarily, maybe long term, maybe not, I don't know. So it's kind of like a nuisance that's specifically created by the property owner in the way that they put this car under these lines in an area where cars get graffitied and it's in, in sight of a couple schools. And so you you start kind of seeing where you, you swing the balance to ah the railroad company maybe should have seen this coming. And doing nothing about it, not warning, not blocking it off, is the sort of thing that can lead to a lead to liability being imposed. And let's reiterate, they didn't even touch the lines. They didn't have to touch the lines to be injured. They were just near the lines. And, and that's right. That which means there's an incredible amount of power there. And again, the railroad company probably should have been aware of that and kept the, that thing away from those lines. Is that is that what you're suggesting? That is what I'm suggesting as a theory of liability, right? That either under some kind of this is a child and there's some attractive nuisance, nuisance principles in play. Now, they're 17, right? This isn't like an eight-year-old kid who who wandered in. But they're still legally minors. And that means that you can apply a different analysis other than just, you know, to, to consider whether or not this was a sufficiently attractive nuisance that you have to take some other precautions. But the court also said that when you take all the factors into consideration, you could find this to be willful or, or wanton misconduct, wanton negligence, higher than ordinary negligence, to to know that you're having this number of injuries and deaths, to warn the heck out of your employees about it, and then to park this car right under those lines, right near a school with a ladder accessible to climb that car. Like there's a lot of things going on that when you add them all up, a reasonable finder of fact could, and in this case I note did, find that the railroad company was liable for the injury to trespassers to the tune of $24.2 million. The vast majority went to the one who was more severely hurt, but there were also punitives tacked on, right? They're not dead. N neither of them died. I mean, burns over 75% of your body is pretty bad. You're not convinced, Ron? You're I'm not convinced. I'm struggling over here. No, no. Fuck around, find out, right? These kids are <laughs> 17 years old, right? And this is not, um, what do we call these things? An, an attractive nuisance? This is an unattractive nuisance, okay? Right? Everyone knows you don't go near the train tracks, right? You don't touch the train track, right? The third rail or whatever. We know not to fuck around on the train tracks. Everyone knows this. I grew up near train tracks. I was told not to be on them a million times. You were told not to be on them. And Did I was you on play them a million them? times. Yeah. Yes, but I knew if a train hit me, it was on me. My mom wasn't suing the train company. <laughs> That's what made it exciting is because we knew that we could get killed at any moment. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> we used to sit on the train tracks at our favorite swimming hole. It was a bridge, a railroad bridge. And I probably sat on that bridge for a million and a half hours as a child. 
with 12 of my buddies jumping off of it into the water, hanging out, uh, doing all kinds of fun things. And we knew if a train came, it was on us, right? Well, Get out of the way. Right, but look look here, stand by me. You guys want to go see a dead body? I understand that if a train hits you, like a train moving on the train tracks is not an act of negligence on the part of the train company. But what if the bridge collapsed while you were sitting on it and the train company knew that the bridge was in disrepair, right? And you were there, you were a trespasser, you weren't supposed to be on the bridge, but they knew kids sat on that bridge. And also they knew the bridge wasn't safe, right? Does that change your analysis? I mean, if they knew the bridge was unsafe, but simply parking a car, a train car, they, I mean, they have probably tens of thousands of these things. You can't protect them all from kid, you know, 17 year old kids. They knew they were in a bad place in a bad situation. Right. And it's unfortunate what happened to them. I mean, I would pay for the medical bills and you know what? That's a gift. Wow. Hey, yeah. Ronnie, um, what would you say if you had to switch hats? Because you're my worst okay. nightmare in a, in a juror. You know, a strong personality. <laughs> making practical. I would convince the rest of the jury, too. I would, uh, like, I'm ready to go to the mat on this one. 12 angry Rons. Put on your other hat. Just play. Okay. I'm going to try to be that one. <laughs> that yeah, one home juror. What, what would you say to yourself? <laughs> if that was. Yeah, so, okay. I could, just, I could go with. Um, all right, we know that kids are always there, right? Because of the graffiti. We we know kids are going to go play on these trains. Um, how can we further protect uh, or seal off? Or, and, you know, maybe there has to be some engineering design to uh, stop kids from being able to climb on cars. Like, is the train company doing enough to stop people from getting hurt on their property or, you know, on their possessions, whatever, on their equipment. That's it. I mean, for me, it's, it would be very, it's, it's very difficult for me, this one. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, memo to other plaintiff's attorneys out there. If, if Ron (laughs) Myers is in your jury pool, you should definitely not select him for your jury. Use that challenge unless you can get five, six of him to leave and and keep that other one sixth of Ron on. Right. So, well, isn't it interesting, Bill? That, that makes me think if you're having a case on, you know, can trespassers sue that in the voir dire of the potential jurors asking them whether or not they believe trespassers have any rights is just crucial. Like jury selection and trying to understand their train of thought going into it would be crucial. And, and again, this this is where I'm I struggle. It's the trespassing part, the uninvited part. If if my friends come over um, Saturday night, um, for a few drinks and, and they, one of them gets tipsy and falls down my steps, leaving my house and gets hurt. I'm okay with them suing me. I'm okay with them suing my homeowners. Like I'm good with that. An amicable lawsuit. Hey, you're hurt. Not only to pay your medical bills, but there's pain and suffering. You're going to be off work. It hurts, right? You should be paid for your pain. I feel, but I, Again, and it's maybe it's a personal thing, the, the trespassing part, the uninvited part, the, the part where you know you shouldn't be there. You know this, right? If I go climb that, uh, that high uh, voltage tower, right, and I get electrocuted, sorry. Well, <laughs> not to belabor this point, right? But one, uh, 
we, we hope and ask that jurors will do their job and apply the law that's told to them. The law that the judge is going to tell you is not that you have no duty to a trespasser. It's that you have a limited duty to a trespasser. There are obviously cases where people have climbed high voltage towers, encountered electricity, been shocked, and, and generally there's no case there. They don't just know they're trespassing. They know it's a high voltage, high tension line. They're climbing a tower. They are specifically choosing to encounter this risk. Climbing on top of a boxcar and not touching any wires, um, the court found right that people and children in particular are not likely to know that there is that risk up there on top of this train, right? If they fall off the train when they're trespassing, that's different, right? They, the train company didn't do anything to make the person fall off the train. They just fell. But when you encounter an unanticipated and undiscoverable risk, like, hey, a, a giant bolt of electricity can jump off these wires and get me up here on top of the car, you know, that changes the calculus. And I would hope that confronted with those facts, a juror would, you know, find how I would want them to find here, which is, yeah, the, the train company has responsibility and the train company knows of this risk and knows that people trespass. And, you know, they don't have to, they don't have to make sure no one ever gets hurt, but, but put up some signs, uh, pull up the ladder on the car so that the car is harder to climb, park it on a different siding that doesn't have these wires over it, whatever you've got to do. If there are some relatively attainable things you can do to reduce this risk, do them. And if you didn't, if you've just chosen to take the approach as a train company, hey, if someone climbs up here, that's on them, is not good enough. Okay, that should about do it for this episode of I Strenuously Object. Uh, thanks to the godfather himself, uh, multiple personality Ron, uh, for being our entire jury here today. Uh, we appreciate his time, his input, and his insight. Uh, hopefully you, the listener, have you know learned something or were entertained in some other way. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people to check us out. Uh, if you have questions uh, for our Mailing It In segment or other feedback for the podcast, email us. That's at iobject at pghfirm.com. Uh, to that end, I note our next episode will have a Mailing It In segment. Um, so get those questions in and, uh, additionally in our next episode, we have one other case or no case to discuss, uh, that of the ugly baby. Is it me or was that the ugliest baby you have ever seen? Oh. So we are on Instagram at I strenuously object podcast. And for more information on personal injury cases, uh, property tax appeals, uh, medical malpractice. Uh, if you're hurt, if you need legal help, visit Flaherty Fardo at pghfirm.com. Until next time, some parting advice. Saddle! Saddle, saddle!